welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. If you got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. You can go ahead and, and start turning there. Now, I wasn't here last week, and many of you uh, uh, were here, so you know that. But here's what you need to know about a preacher. is When a preacher is gone for a week, they get refreshed, they get excited, and then they get hungry. So I want, not hungry for food, hungry to preach. So uh, we're going to be here till about 12.30, 12.45. I hope you guys are okay with that, because I'm pumped up. And this week is the week that we always introduce our yearly focus. The first Sunday of the year is our yearly focus, and, and it's always exciting, but this year it's an especially exciting topic. This is something that you're going to want to be involved in and engaged in, and I want to hear lots of amens this morning. And so um, I thought what we'd better do is we had better practice that, because you're going to want to be ready to do that. So three, two, one. I can't believe I'm going to have to teach you guys how to amen in a Baptist church. It's pitiful. Okay, everybody close your eyes for a second. Now, I want, you to, I want you to picture back when you were a kid and you were at church, and there was this deacon there, and he always wore his glasses on the end of his nose. His belly was a little bit too big. His tie was always four inches too short or five inches too long. When you went to potluck, he had like a physics-defying plate mounded with food. You guys know who I'm talking about? Now, when, when he, when he amen in church, he didn't go, amen, good job, preacher, yeah. Like he started like, like in his belly, he Amen. That, that's what I'm looking for this morning, okay? So let's try again. Three, two, one. That is better. I want to hear some more of that. Now, let, let's practice for just a second. I'm going to throw you some softballs. When you hear something you agree with this morning, I, I want to hear that from you, okay? So here's some softballs. Uh, softball number one. Uh, God worked in Ramsey Heights in 2023. Very good. We expect our God to work in Ramsey Heights in 2024. Very good. Okay, let's step it up a notch. It's going to be a little bit harder. So you're going to have to think through this. Are you guys ready? Dogs are better than cats. Oh, about half and half. Okay. I, I just want to warn you, you're welcome to your own opinions, but those of you who didn't amen that, you just want to make sure you're right with God because you don't want to end up in the place where cats came from. Okay. So just make sure you're good with that. Uh, another one, another one. That Brian gets better looking with age. Yeah. I heard my Aunt Donna and Caden Williams. That's a little awkward. <laughs> I'm kidding, Caden. Caden didn't say a word. Caden didn't say a word. All right, let's be serious now. Let's be serious. Amen if you agree. We serve a great and mighty God. And he is the best thing that ever happened to us. And what we want more than anything is we want other people to know him like we do. That's what I want to talk to us about this morning. I want to talk to us about our focus. Uh, this thing that we every year say, this is an area that we can grow in. Something that we pray about and we study on. Something that we can do better. And I think that we as a church, collectively and individually, I think we can renew and put more of a focus on our commitment to bringing people to Jesus Christ. Amen. There it is. There we go. And so it, it's simple how we do this. How, how do we 
focus on bringing people to Christ. It's simple. is that saved people, Christians, you and me, share the gospel with unbelievers, and that is the process in which they get saved. It's so simple. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's in Romans chapter 10. So if we want to see people saved, if we sit here and we're going to say, I want to see people come to Christ this year, here's what it's going to take. It's going to take some believers who are passionate enough about people coming to Christ that we're willing to say, let me tell you about my Jesus. That's what we're going to focus. Those amens are getting a little weaker. Okay, that's okay. I still love you. I still love you. But that's what we want to do. The, the, to mean, the meaning here is that if we want to see salvation, people must hear. And if people are going to hear, we must share. Now, there's a sense of urgency to this because we never know when it might be somebody's last day. And here's what the Bible says. This is in Ephesians chapter 2. I said Acts 16. I'm going to meet you here in a second. But listen to this. It's talking to believers. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Skip a few verses, and then it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together in Christ. Now, those verses are speaking to me and you if you were a follower of Christ. They're speaking to us, and it details our past state that before Christ we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but then our current state is as believers, as people who have put our faith in him, that he has made us alive. But it also gives us two categories of people. The two categories are people who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, and then those of us who have been made alive by Christ. And so those of us that have been made alive have a responsibility to share that with those who are still dead in their trespasses. Think of it this way, just for a physical example. Imagine that, that you had passed away. You were dead. They had picked out your grave. You were buried. And then in a moment, all of a sudden, you were alive again. And you look back at your empty grave where you once were. And you look at the tombstone and you see your name. And you realize, I was dead, but now I've been brought back to life. And as you begin to celebrate, you look around and within the cemetery you see the gravestones of people that you love your family your friends your children and your grandchildren the people that you work with people who you passionately love in that moment what do you do do you go off and just celebrate your newfound life or do you unleash the secret that brings people back to life on that graveyard and in a spiritual sense, that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to share the gospel with those who are dead in their sin so they may be made alive like us. Uh-huh, there it is. So your first take-home truth this morning, if you keep up with these on your outline, it says, those alive in Christ share the gospel with those dead in sin. Those alive in Christ share the gospel with those dead in sin. Now I will meet you at Acts chapter 16. Let me give you a little background. The, the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. It's detailing a history of what the apostles did after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. By the time we get to Acts 16, we are now following an individual around named Paul. You probably know Paul. He once was Saul, now Paul. He uh, uh, wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul a 
another man who you may not be familiar with, Silas, and then a gentleman named Timothy who is sometimes with them. And they are out spreading the gospel from town to town. So the book of Acts follows Paul as he goes on a missionary journey. He goes to this city and this city and this city and this city. And what they would do is as they came to a city, they would go find the Jewish synagogue. And if the, the people were there gathered, they would begin to preach that you have waited all of your life for this Messiah. And I've got news for you. The Messiah has came and it's even better than you expected. But not all cities had a synagogue. There had to be a certain population of Jewish people before they would build a synagogue there. So if the city didn't have a synagogue, the Jewish people would meet down by the river at an appointed time under a tree and there they would pray and worship just on the banks of the river. Now that is where we are at with Paul and Silas. And we're going to look at two different stories here that will have a bunch of things that are different about them but a few things in common. And I need you to pay attention because there will be a quiz on what is in common between these two stories. I'm going to give you some hints but be paying attention and listening for them. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts 16, we're going to start with verses 11 through 15. It says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. Boy, that's a word. And the next day came to Nepopolis. And from there to Philippi, which is in the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. Hang tight there for just a second. Let me explain this. This is going to be a little bit important in a second. To sell purple meant that this lady was probably very rich. Purple was the color of royalty. And the way purple was made is that if you took a snail, a certain type of snail had one drop of purple, what would be used for dye in it. So it was a very long process to make any purple garment because it took thousands upon thousands of snails to do so. So to sell purple meant that you probably sold to the rich clientele, the most elite, and you were probably pretty wealthy yourself. So this Lydia lady is likely a very wealthy woman. Back to verse 14. Let's read that again. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Okay, we're going to move to the second story, which will be in verse 25 through 34. Let me fill in the gaps for just a second. Paul and Silas do stay with this lady in, uh, with this lady in the same city. Now, while they're there, they are out doing what they do best. They are out in the city sharing the gospel. And they encounter a slave girl who is a psychic. She is a fortune teller. She can see the future. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Brian, those things are not real. Well, yes, they are. Because what the Bible tells us about this slave girl is she has the power to do these things because she is demonically possessed. So there is a demonic spiritual power within her that gives her the ability to see the future and tell fortunes. Now, just a side note, not the point of the sermon, but a side note. Christians should be very, very careful of dealing with anything in the realm of psychics, fortune telling, witchcraft, seances, tarot cards, those kind of things. Because one of two things is going to happen. If you're lucky, you latched onto a fraud who's going to take your money and tell you what you want to hear. If you're very unlucky, you may find the real thing in which is being powered by demonic power. 
So they find this girl, and this girl who is demon-possessed, the demon within her, follows them throughout the city and begins to mock them. Now, it's telling the truth, but it's doing it in a mocking way. It's like, oh, here's Paul and Silas. They're going to tell you about Jesus. And this goes on for several days until Paul turns around and casts the demon out of the girl. Now, the reason this is important is because what happens is the owner of the slave girl gets very angry. This girl had a demon. The demon gave her the ability to fortune tell. The demon is gone. The girl can no longer fortune tell, and his bankroll just dried up because he's been charging people for her services. So what they do is they take Paul and Silas, they beat them, and then they throw them in prison. That's where we pick up at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison prison, awakened from sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, supposed the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, and was about to kill himself. The reason for that was the penalty for being a guard at a prison and letting prisoners escape was death. And he thought that whatever he would do to himself would be better than what the Roman authorities would do when they caught him. So he's about to kill himself, verse 28. But Paul killed or called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those in his house. And he, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Two stories, two radically different moments, two radically different people. You have one is a woman, the other is a man. One is very rich, one is a government worker. One overheard what they were saying, one came to Paul and Silas and asked them. One was a Jew, one was a Roman. But there are some similarities between these two individuals, the Roman jailkeeper and Lydia, the seller of purple. They both had the gospel shared with them. They both accepted Christ. Pop quiz, what's the other thing they have in common? And their household, exactly. And their household. Here's what brings these two in common. They, when they got saved, when they came to Christ, they brought others with them. I'm going to say that again. When they got saved, when they came to Christ, when they gave their life to Christ, they wanted to share it with others as well. They didn't keep it bottled up within themselves. They wanted others to have what they had. Now, every week when we leave here, we'll do it again here in about 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour and 30 minutes, something like that. We say the Great Commission as we leave, right? It is my calling to go to all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The reason we say that is because we want that to be the last thing before we leave here that we put in our minds that it is my calling, it is your individual calling to go out into that world and bring people to our Christ. That's why we say that. It's important to us that we live that, not just in this building on Sunday morning, but week to week as we're out in the world. And so some of us look at that. Some of us look at that and we're terrified. 
I don't know, Brian. Sharing the gospel sounds uncomfortable. We don't have to be one of those like freaks that's always smiling and you know finding bad people and telling them they need Jesus. And the answer to that is, uh, yeah, you're going to have to be one of those freaks that tells people about Jesus. I do want to give you a little comfort, though, because I think sometimes what we think of when we think of sharing the gospel is just a little bit too broad for what God calls most of us to do. If you go into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a list of spiritual gifts there. These are gifts that when you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you, and He gives you certain gifts that you can use to serve Him. One of those gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the gift of evangelism. That means the Holy Spirit equips some people, not all people, some people with a supernatural ability to share the gospel in a different way than others. And I'm going to be honest with you, you may not have that gift. I don't have that gift. I have the same Bible and the same gospel as every other preacher and pastor in the world. And yet there are some who can preach the gospel and see 10, 20 people come running to the front. God has never given me that gift. He's gifted me with other things. So what I'm trying to get at is there's probably very few people in this room that need to leave here, go to Walmart and buy a karaoke machine, set up on the corner of a street and start proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That is not what every single person is called to do. Paul and Silas had that gifting. You and I, you and I might not. But listen, that is not an excuse to say, I don't have the gift of evangelism, therefore I should never share the gospel. Here's what I'm telling you. Some people are gifted, but all people are called to share the gospel. Okay? All believers are called to share the gospel in a different way. I, wanna, I want you to notice that there are some brand new believers here, and they brought people with them, even though even though they were brand new to the faith. So our 2024 focus on your take-home truths is to reach our household. To reach our household. Now, if you hear that, you may be thinking, well, this is it's pretty easy, Brian, because when I think household in America, I think about Brian, I think about Jessica, and I think about Oakley, because that's who lives in my physical house. But this Greek word that we translate household is the Greek word oikos, and it doesn't just mean your immediate family. In Greek culture, this word encompassed everybody that you knew. It encompassed your extended family, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. It encompassed your servants who worked at your house, the people who worked with you, and their families. Household was your realm of influence. And so what we're calling our church to do this week, or this, this uh, year, what we're trying to grow in, and our goal of 2024, is we want to leverage the relationships that we have for the betterment of the gospel. We want to share the gospel with people we know. God might give you an opportunity, might give you an opportunity to witness to a waitress or a hitchhiker or somebody that you see one time on a service call. He might do that, and I don't want to take that away from you. But I believe with all of my heart, God puts certain people in other people's lives so that he can work in those relationships. And for every person in this room, God has placed people in your life knowing that you are a follower of his, knowing that he wants you to share the gospel with them. You may be the only gospel light in somebody's life. You may be the only person that can share the gospel with your cousin. You may be the only person at your place of employment that can share the gospel with that one really cranky employee. 
God has placed you in places and in relationships in the hope that you will do that. And I personally, this is an opinion, I personally believe this is the best way to share the gospel within personal relationships. Let's do it this way. Let's just, let's just do an experiment. Raise your hand if you got saved because somebody you did not know handed you a gospel tract or shared the gospel with you. Just a couple of us, somebody you did not know. Now, raise your hand if you got saved because somebody that you did know took you to church and taught you about Jesus. That's almost all of us. Here's what I'm telling you. At our church, we are Christ followers, most of us, because somebody we knew and were close to taught us about Jesus. I got saved when I was eight. I still remember my grandma walking in. I was asking my mom some questions about heaven and hell. She called my grandma. I can still see my grandma. I don't know if you guys ever seen my grandma. She glides. I can still see her walking in with that Bible and sharing with me what it means to be a follower of Christ and how to be saved. The truth is, most people will come to Christ through relationships that already exist. So here's what I'm thinking. If, if we look at the numbers, I'm going to explain them to you here in a second. It's going to be really tedious. I'm sorry. I was excited. I'm sorry. But if we look at the numbers of those of us that are here, we have the influence to reach lots and lots of people with the gospel just through the relationships that we have, just through the people that we know. Um, I won't give you all the details of this. There, there's an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar, and I'll, I'll spare you all of the research and the details. But this, this anthropologist came up with a theory and backed it up with research that most human beings kind of cap out at about 150 relationships. That almost every human being basically has 150 people that are something like a working relationship, a friend or a close friend or something of that. And this has been used by psychologists to uh, do lots of things. If you look at most people's contacts, it will be a number close in their phone, number close to 150 people. If you look at larger social network connections, usually there's 150 people that interact with each other. Marketing firms use this number in the ways that they market. Software companies use this as a base when they're building software. This is interesting too. Churches, only 15 to 20% of churches will ever be bigger than 150 people. There's something magical about that number that, that that seems to be the max amount of relationships that we can have. Now, some other uh, researchers have taken this and they have expanded on this theory and they have said, well, within these relationships, you have different circles of friends. I've got a, a graphic coming up that'll kind of go through what I'm about to talk about here. Is this for each of us, most of us have three to five people that are our inner circle. These are the people that we talk to every single day, the people that we interact with on a very regular basis. This is your, your best, best friend. This is your, your mom or your dad or whoever, wherever you're at in your life. I guess I should throw your spouse in there. Your spouse should be your inner circle. You know, that's the marriage series is coming up, spouse, inner circle. We have about three to five people that, that humans are going to say, this is my person. This is somebody I'm very close to. And let me just encourage you another side note. Please make your inner circle other Christ followers. If you're serious about following God, the people who speak into your life the most need to be people who are going to speak God into your life as well. So we, we have three to five best friends, spouses. If you're younger, our kids, like my daughter's inner circle would be me and Jessica and her grandparents. Those, those things are all... 
Very important. Well, included in that, or uh, let me take that back. Um, in addition to that, we have 15 or so close friends. These are the people who we're going to be with at social events. It's that, it's that work bestie who's like your best friend at work, but you don't really have anything in common out of work. It's the people who you really feel close to. Not your inner circle, not the ones who, who share everything with you, but the people who you would go out to eat with, your favorite people at church. So 15 close friends, three to five of those inner circle. Here's what's interesting about this, is that even Jesus fell into this pattern. When Jesus picked the people who were going to be closest to him, he picked 12 disciples that he spent his time with, pouring into, ministering to, enjoying and loving on them. He picked 12 of them, and yet there were three of them who were in his inner circle, James, John, and Peter. So even Jesus falls into this particular um, particular pattern. So in addition to that, we have 50 people that would be our friends. These are our pals at church, the work social group that we're kind of in, who we eat lunch with, the people who we see at our social activities and hang out with. They're close relationships, maybe some of them from the past that fell into disrepair. Maybe our best friend from 10 years ago is still a friend, but I don't talk to him all the day. In addition to that, we have about 150 working relationships. Your working relationships are the people who you know, but you don't really like. No, that's the wrong say. It's the people who aren't like you don't love, like they're not your friends. It's, it's like the neighbor that you're mowing the yard and you stop and talk to like once a year. It's the people that work on the other end of the hall and you say hi to them in the morning, but you don't really have a relationship. And then in addition to that, you have about 400 or so acquaintances. These are the people that you know their name and you wave at them in the grocery store and you just kind of awkward. You're like, hi, how are you? And walk by them. Or if you're like me, you turn around and walk the other way when you see them because it's awkward and you don't know what to do. I'm the only one. So basically, these are the amount of relationships that each of us have. There's one exception in this room to that, and that exception is Glenita Anderson, who has somewhere between 10 and 20,000 close relationships. We could have visitors from Russia, and they'd walk in and go, oh, Glenita, we met her on a cruise or something. I don't know. It doesn't work. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, we have about 150 people who we would consider friends. Now, I said all this to say, let's calculate some numbers. We're just going to, for round numbers, I'm bad at math. For round numbers, let's just say there's 100 of us here. That's roughly the attendance we've had the last couple months. If there's 100 of us and we begin to do the math, this is coming up on your take-home truths. If we define our household as that inner circle, that three to five, those close friends, those 15, and our friends, Ramsey Heights has 5,000 friend relationships from the people sitting in this room. We have a huge reach of people that we call friends if we put them all together in one basket. If we narrow that down and say, well, just our inner circle and just those that are our close friend relationships, we still have about 1,500. Here, here's what I'm getting. Collectively, we have a huge reach with the gospel here at Ramsey Heights. There are a lot of people that we're connected to that we can share the gospel with. Our work is not done. As a matter of fact, I would say our work hasn't even begun. Until we, until we start baptizing like a thousand people a year, I'm going to be like, I think we got more work to do here, guys. And for that reason, in 2024, we, we want people to come to Christ. We're going to celebrate every single person that comes to Christ. But if we have relationships with 1,500 people, and then as a church, we have one or two baptisms a year, that tells me we're not really working in our relationships very much for the gospel. We're not sharing the gospel like we should if we know that many people, and yet we're bringing that few of them to Christ. Now, more math, because I hate math and I did it anyway. 
if you take the population of Independence County and you divide it by that number, we reach roughly 3.9% of the county. It doesn't sound like very much, right? It doesn't sound like, like a whole lot of people. Okay, almost 4% of the county we have connections with. It doesn't sound like a lot. Turns out it is. Uh, another researcher, um, Erica Chinwith, make sure I said that right, Chinwith, was doing some research about protests. And her question was, if you have a group of people and they're all wanting some kind of social and political change, what percent of the population do you have to have for all these people working together to change the culture? And if I ask you what percentage do you think, some of us land at like 50%, that's a voting majority, that makes sense. You might think about it a little deeper and go, 30%, because 30% of loud people have more power than 70% quiet people, right? You know what the number is? 3.5%. She said, anytime 3.5% of the population all move in the same direction at the same time, change happens every single time. So what I'm telling you is that at our little small Batesville, Arkansas country church, we have the reach to change this county. We have the reach to see thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come to Christ. But we have to be serious about spreading the gospel. We have to be serious about doing it together. We have to be serious about wanting to bring people to our Savior. So this year we will be focusing on that. And what, what does that mean to focus on that? It, it means we're going to grow, but we have some goals. So your next take home truth number three, we have some collective goals that we're going to go over. Collective goals are things that we're going to do as a church that I, as the pastor here, am going to be working on myself. And these are things that we're going to do to try to grow our ability to share the gospel and know how to share the gospel. The first thing that we're going to be doing as a church in this building collectively is encouragement. Let's be honest. One of the reasons we don't like to share the gospel is we just kind of forget it gets put on the back burner a little bit like like oh, I'll do it next week or oh I hadn't thought about that since Brian preached on it on the first Sunday of the year and so we're going to be bringing this again and again and again as a focus a topic that you're going to hear and be reminded about each week as we go through whatever we're studying there's always a, a, a way to work in sharing the gospel secondly point B is we're going to equip ourselves to share the gospel let's be honest Sharing the gospel is scary. I don't know how, Brian. I don't know what to say. What if they have a question I don't know what to do with? And, and, and it's easier if I, just, if I just don't do it. And that's the reason, if we're honest, that's the reason that you guys, and I love this, I'm not complaining about this, that's the reason you bring people to me. Because you're like, well, Brian, I don't really know how to do this, and so I want, I want you to, to help me, and I'm always welcome to do that. But what we want to do what we want to do is make sure that everybody in this room is capable of sharing the gospel with the same confidence that you would expect your pastor to share it. That you can share it at lunch with a friend. You can share it with your neighbor when he walks into your yard and says hi. That it's something that you're capable of doing, that you know how to do, and that you're confident in doing it. So through teaching, we will get you those practical tools. The third thing we're going to do collectively when you come to Ramsey Heights in this building, you can expect us to proclaim the gospel. We already do this, but I want you to expect it more this week. And I want you to hold me accountable to do it more this year. This year. Here's, here's something I truly believe about church. I believe a church's identity will be shaped by what is repeated often in the church. 
Whatever is said the most within this building is going to be kind of our collective identity of what we believe is important. This is, this is the reason we share the gospel in every single message. This is the reason we repeat the Great Commission every single week. This is the reason why I continually bring up how much we give to missions and how important that is. This is the reason we take three to four Sundays a year and stop whatever we're doing and say, you need to build connections and get in small groups. It's also the reason you don't hear me talk about how you should dress when you come to church or other things of that nature. It's because we want our church to be shaped by God's word, a love for Jesus, and a passion for his mission. And so we repeat the things that keep us focused on that. And so we're going to continue to repeat this year the gospel and what it is and how to share it in our need to share it. Now this brings us to the hard part. This brings us to your next take home truth is our individual goals, number four. This is, this is my goals for you and me, but you individually. See, I want you to understand something about this church. Ramsey Heights is not a building. I love this building. If it burns down, we'll meet in the field next door. It'd be cold, but we'll do it. Like, Ramsey Heights is not a church. Ramsey Heights is not a name. Ramsey Heights is you and me. We are the church. And church is not over because we leave here at 12 o'clock or 12.45 or whenever we get out of here today. Church is still going because you are the church. We are just the church dispersed. We are deployed to our places of employment. We are deployed to our family reunions. We are deployed to our neighbors and our neighborhoods. We are still the church doing the church's work, but you're doing it individually by yourself. And then we come back every week and we collect together again and we work together. And so these goals are what we want for you to do this year. The things that I want you individually to make a commitment and say, I'm going to do this in order to bring more people to my Savior. And then we as a church collectively will hopefully give you the tools you need to that. The first one is that we want you to pray for your households. More on this next week. But I want you to notice something. In verse 14 of Acts 16, when they're talking to Lydia, you notice something. It says that the Lord opened her heart. And I want to be very clear. When I'm talking about sharing the gospel, I'm not expecting you to save anybody. The gospel doesn't expect you to save anybody because the gospel literally says you can't save anybody. The only one who can save is Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the only one. Our job is to be legitimate to what he's called us to and tell people about his saving power. And then the results are up to him. That's, that's who does the saving. And as a church and as individuals, here's what I truly believe. If you do what God calls you to do and then ask him to work in that, God will work in your church. God will work in your gospel sharing if you just ask him to be a part of that. But he will do it. But you won't save him. It'll have to be God. So as you do this, be praying for God to work in people. Pray for him to open hearts of people who have closed hearts. Pray for opportunities. God, I really just need a time when I'm sitting alone with Uncle Joe and there's that moment of silence when I can go, hey, when you die, are you going to go to heaven or hell? I need those opportunities. And then pray for guidance. Here's something I've learned about God. Is God has a plan that's bigger than me and you. Who would have thought the God of the universe doesn't revolve his whole life around us? And God already has plans for who he's working in as we speak. And he's planning to send you to him at the right time. So pray for guidance for who to talk to and when. Because you can do the right thing at the wrong time. 
In Acts 16, immediately before this passage that we read, it says that Paul and Silas, they had plans. They were going to go to Asia. They were going to share the gospel in Asia. That's a great thing. And it says God kept them from doing that. The Holy Spirit would not let them go to Asia and instead push them into Europe. Completely changed the course of history. Why did God do that? I don't know. But I know he had a plan, and his people were pushed into his plan. So be praying for guidance, for open hearts, and for opportunities. Secondly, secondly is love your households. Love your group of people. Love, love this realm of influence that you have. And I want to be clear, when I say love, love is an action. It is not an emotion. And I can prove that biblically. You cannot command an emotion, and yet the Bible commands us to love. The Bible says, love your enemies, love your neighbors, love everybody. That's what the Bible teaches us. And you can't command emotion, so it must be commanding an action. And I've actually put this to a test. You cannot command an emotion. I know this because, men, if your wife has ever been mad and you've said the words, you need to calm down or you're overreacting, you need to stop that, she doesn't go, yeah, you're right. And if you've done that before, I just think we need to take a moment and praise God for your continued safety. And if you've not done that, learn from my example, don't. You can't command emotions with words. But the Bible commands us to love. And so love has to be an action. If we left here today and you were out in the foyer and you saw me dog cussing my wife, you don't want to hear me say the words, oh, I love her so much. Because you know that those two things don't go together. Because love is an action. And so this year, love with action, by spending time with people, by serving them, by, by sending them words of love. I'm 36. I routinely pick up my phone and send other men the words, I love you. And it's not romantic. But I want them to know that because when I come to them and I have to say a hard truth about how their life is going, about their need for Christ, about the fact that they're a sinner, and if they died, they would go to hell, I want them to know that that comes from a place that when Brian texts me, Brian loves me. And it's not a judgmental place. Love with action. People don't want to hear your words until they've seen your actions. And the last thing we're going to ask you to do, the last thing we're going to encourage you to do, is share the gospel with people. Share the true gospel. And I want to back up because I think what some of you heard was invite people to church. That's not what I said. I said, share the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. And the reason I say that inviting people to church is wonderful. I'm so thankful you love our church. I love it too. But we don't want to communicate to people who are lost what you need is church because church doesn't save anybody. We want to communicate to people who are lost what you need is Jesus. And then in the course of that conversation about them needing Jesus, then you can be like, hey, come explore Jesus with us. Come and, come, come and see what it looks like for people to worship. Come hear the word of God, but always keep the focus on Jesus Christ, not on church. So be prepared to go out and tell people who he is and what the good news of Jesus is. Rick, if you want to start to make your up, way up here. And in case you're confused of what the gospel is, let me share it with you this morning. There's really two responses to this. One, you've never heard the gospel, never committed yourself to Christ. You can accept him today. It's that simple. But two, for those of us who are followers of Christ, we should be convicted by the gospel still. That though I was dirty and though I was lost, my God came for me. And he loved me enough to give me eternal life. And he loves others enough to give them eternal life. 
Because each and every one of us are dirty sinners and we are separated from a perfect and holy God. And in His righteousness, He cannot not judge sin. So what He did is He sacrificed His own Son on a cross and put the price of my sin on a perfect Jesus Christ because He loved me that much. Three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the grave, proving that he has the power over death. And he promises us, he promises us that if we will place our faith in him, that he will give us the same eternal life that he has. That's the gospel. And today you may need to respond to that yourself. Maybe you've never accepted that. Maybe you were just told church was the important thing. Church doesn't do anything for you until you accept Christ as your savior. But for the rest of us, let's renew our commitment to the gospel, our love of Jesus Christ, and our excitement to share it with others. This is our response time. I'm going to ask you, if nothing else, that you pray for somebody today that God lays on your heart that you can begin to work on and share the gospel with in 2024. I'm up here if you want to pray with me or share anything with me. Let's stand and worship. Thank you for joining us this week at Ramsey Heights. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And if you did, feel free to share it with others. If we can help you begin to follow Jesus or grow in your relationship with Him, join us on Sundays or connect with us on social media or our website, RamseyHeightsFamily.online.